Welcome, everyone, to our Sunday service. Special welcome to all our guests at the Expanding Light, our guests at the Meditation Treat, and all those wonderful people online as well. My name is Swami Pranaba, and this is Swami Parvati. It's our joy to be with you. This reading is taken from Rays of the One Light, which is uh, a book of commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita written by Swami Kriyananda. This week's topic is How Democratic is Truth? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. We live in an age when people assume that knowledge should be available equally to all. In matters susceptible of judgment by normal common sense, however, everyone knows there are exceptions. Access to a control room for intercontinental missiles is limited by universal consent to a very few. Access to the controls of a passenger airliner is also limited to those with the necessary knowledge for operating them, and also to those with, pro- with prior uh, proper authorization. If people don't see the disadvantages of making more subtle knowledge universally available, it is only because they are ignorant of the risks involved. In the case of subtle knowledge, the main disadvantage in making it universally available is the harm it might do to one who isn't ready for it and who might even mock it. True, by mocking truth, he might undermine the faith of a few truth-seekers, but then such tests can also be beneficial as a means of strengthening faith. Again true, the clever doubter's misrepresentation of those truths may dissuade a few seekers from following the spiritual path. But if a seeker really is sincere, he will recognize the truth eventually because it resonates with his own being. No, the greatest problem accrues to the shallow doubter himself. To give him an opportunity to affirm his ignorance might not only estrange him even more from the truth, delaying the time when he will turn, as all people must, eventually, to the light. Thus the scriptures advise not secrecy, but discretion in the sharing of truth. Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. And Sri Krishna says in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Never speak of these truths to one who is without self-control or devotion, who renders no service, who does not care to hear, or who speaks ill of me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, on a little hike to get to water or anything. I just thought I'd bring it on up here. (laughs) So I would like to uh, begin this part of the service by reading from Whispers from Eternity. I want to hear thy song in the silence of my soul. Thy gentle voice saying, Come home, I often heard. 
but through many lives it was drowned in the tumult of my wild cravings. I have forsaken the jostling crowds of desire. In the solitude of my mind, my devotion bursts to hear thy voice. Take away every dream memory of earthly sounds that yet lurks in my mind. I want to hear thy still voice ever singing in the silence of my soul. So this topic is a fun one in a way. In the longer reading, Swami Kriyananda says, Jesus Christ must have had a good sense of humor to call people dogs and swine. <laughs> but they do exist out there. They just don't look like dogs and swine. But but in the, uh, the Gita, where it lists off all the things that people don't want, they don't want to hear, they don't have self-control, they don't have devotion, they just don't want it yet. So uh, it's interesting. I think you know, in our day and age, as Swami says in the reading, people think that all are equal. And it's obviously not true. But what they're feeling really is all are equal as souls. Everyone came out from God, has that spark of the divine within, and will return back to that at some point and in their own good time. And it's something that we can't rush and all of us here hear deep truths all the time. But they are revolutionary to people. They are very, it's like a slap in the face for people that are not used to them. Just thinking of the fact that you're responsible for who you are and don't bother about getting a past life reading because everything that you've ever done is captured in who you are right now, what you look like, what culture you're from, what color your skin, you know, whatever it is, it's all here before you. And that's very challenging for people. It's not something that it's an easy thing to come to and also to say that you're responsible for everything you do. Everything that comes to you, is drawn to you by your own karma, by that magnetism. And so these are things that we don't want to just kind of blurt out there. Um, I remember when, uh, when I was first on this path, um, my parents immediately came up to visit me. I was at the meditation retreat. There was four feet of snow, and my parents appeared outside my trailer and little tar paper shack, in December, and it was like, whoa, <laughs> you really wanted to see me, and they did. They wanted to make sure I was okay. They had no idea what I was doing and where I was and what it was all about and was it really crazy and all of that, so they came. And then thereafter, they would come up here. This is in the early 70s, so that first time was 1972, and uh and then they would come up periodically after that. And we would usually meet down by the farmhouse. And then I started the market the next year. And they could relate to that. It was a business. And I was doing something, you know, normal looking, <laughs> you know, somewhat. I, I never showed them where I lived after that first time that they <laughs> discovered because I figured that was a little too much. But, but I think they also could feel that I was happy. And uh, that was a big thing. And they met people. They met Arati, they met Anandi, they met Padma. They met people that they were normal. They could relate to them. You know, again, it wasn't just some very strange thing. But at one point, 
And it was through people that they could relate to this. But at one point, they asked me, so what do you believe? And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go for it. So I started with Jesus Christ coming to Babaji and just the whole shot. And because they asked, you know, hey, it was a moment in time. And karma and reincarnation and, you know, meditation and becoming one with God was the goal, everything. And then there was silence. (laughs) And two things happened. One, they never asked again. (laughs) But, but, you know, a marriage, it's two people. I think my mother would have been more open to things, but they never asked again. And, uh, but they were never negative either. They never, and the reason I had never talked about it is because what was happening here for me with truth and with this path and with divine love and very sensitive, deep spiritual things was so precious that I didn't want anybody even potentially bringing it down. And I wasn't sure where they would be at with it. And I I didn't think, they, they simply weren't interested. You know, it's not a big deal. They simply weren't interested, but they were they were okay with me doing what I was doing. So that was that was fine, but it just also began to tune me in. I wasn't like Swami where he was so deeply enthralled and just gave the autobiography to all of his relatives and all of that. I didn't I didn't do that. I just it was too delicate for me and I just thought no, I I just want to protect this very precious thing that I'm experiencing and learning about and I'll talk with them about it at some time which I I did and then that was it. But um but also just to it made me think about how to relate what we experience to other people. And I have to say with my parents, I found that I just needed to be with them in a way that they could relate to. It was about qualities, kindness, love, joy, compassion, you know, but but just light and just being with them in the way that they could relate to. And so as I progressed on the path and, you know, learned more things and and became a minister and started relating to other people out there, that example actually stood me in good stead because you meet a lot of different kinds of people and they're all in very, very different places. And uh, one time I remember um, Anandi and I were in the Palo Alto area. We were actually in Atherton, and uh, I was asked by a woman that I had been teaching meditation to, uh, her son had died unexpectedly. He was young, and and he had died, and she and her daughter asked me if I would do the memorial service, and I thought, yeah, not not a big thing, you know, this is going to be low-key, and, you know, be a really nice thing to do, and uh, for them. And so, luckily, Anandi came with me because we arrived at the mortuary and there were a hundred grieving people that I did not know at all. I had no idea where they were at spiritually, all of that. And so, I just thought, wow, I mean, what do I say to them? They were grieving because this young boy had died unexpectedly. 
and they had had arguments with him at the end and, you know, said bad words, all different kinds of experiences, but they weren't expecting him to die. And so it was a delicate time, but I just went ahead and did our memorial service. And, uh, you know, the reading from whispers about the airplane and the astral body and all of that, and and the 23rd Psalm, and I thought, you know, that's all that I have to offer them. And I also talked about the fact that, you know, a whole life is not captured just in one moment at the end, so don't don't worry about it so much. You had a whole relationship with him, and, and it's not a, a real horrible thing that you didn't get a chance to have closure at the end there. But afterwards, you know, and I thought, what I can do. And afterwards, people came up, and not everybody, I'm sure a lot of them were kind of like, what? (laughs) But uh, because it was so different from what we would normally have. But a number of them came up, and people that were close to him, and thanked me for what I had said, and also invited Anandi and me to come to the graveside ceremony, which we weren't at all planning on doing, but because they, they didn't know what to do. And so we did something in the car on the way over. We figured out something to do and had them put a flower on the uh, the uh, uh, casket before it was lowered. It was, you know, a, a full uh, graveside ceremony. So just that, because, again, that was what we had to offer. But I could feel that people where they were at really appreciated it. And so it's it's just interesting always. The truth except for those dogs and swine (laughs) who don't really want to know anything. But even they want to know. But many people do want something. And so it's more really tuning into them as individuals and really understanding what can I say here that will be helpful for them. So that, I've found, really can take you quite a long way. And you know, I have to say, for my parents, after my father died, I was sitting with my mother at her house six months after he had died, and she said, very quietly, she said, I might like to learn how to meditate. And I was like, huh? <laughs> but, you know, it, there was something in there, and she was had been thinking about it. And so you just don't know, but it's a sensitive thing for the very reason that Swami says in the reading. If you say too much, people shut down, and you don't want them to do that. Because then they'll say, oh, yeah, I already heard about meditation, or, yeah, that karma and reincarnation stuff. They weren't at all ready to hear about that, but they were ready to hear about maybe a few other things that you could offer them. Um, I also just wanted to read to you the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, again, is an incredible book. And in the um, introduction, Yogananda, because we're talking about uh, truth, well, what is truth? You know, how do you define truth? And Yogananda, because, you know, he called his Hollywood church a church of all religions, well, people will say, oh, but he didn't mean all dogma, (laughs) you know, a church of all dogmatic religions. He meant the truth. And this is what he said, uh, uh, referring to Raja Yoga, the royal yoga, the pathway of the spine. He said, the river that unites all paths 
is the energy flowing in the spine. Raja Yoga takes one straight up the central pathway of the spine into the inner silence of divine communion. It is the teaching of this yoga, finally, that makes the Bhagavad Gita truly a scripture for all mankind. It is why Krishna stated in the Gita, O Arjuna, be thou a yogi. And so it's just, it's just interesting to tune back in again and again to what is truth? What are we really talking about here? Now, not everybody is ready for that to go into the spine and up the spine and out the spiritual eye. That's, that's very deep. But, again, people are ready for parts of that as they go along, and they need to progress and increase their energy level and their level of consciousness. We saw recently a movie that made me think a lot about all of this. It's a particular movie, but it's a very sweet movie, and I think you might enjoy it. You could try watching it. It's called McFarland, USA. And it's it's about, in my mind, when I, I was thinking about it just in a broad way, it's a karmic connection, and it's a karmic just time that happened in a very small, very totally Hispanic Central Valley little town that a man who was a PE teacher at the end of his line because he was ornery and had gotten fired from all of his other jobs and his name was Jim White and he was white, very, with two young daughters and a wife and he had to have a job and so he ended up in McFarland and as a PE coach and it was like hot and nobody was interested and these guys were trying to teach football to these kids who were from families of pickers. Pickers meaning, yeah, they went out in the fields. Before school, their mother would get them up at, you know, like 5.30 in the morning, roll them out of bed. They had started at age 10 or 11 doing this. They were now in high school and they would go out into the fields. They would pick fields Then they would go to school all day, and then if more picking needed to be done at the end of the day, they went out and did that then. And it was like, wow, talk about a very minimal existence and hard, hard life for these kids. So, But they did go to school, and they did take P.E. And so this this guy comes, who the P.E. coach, and he's not doing so good integrating with the the football coach and all of that. I'm just going to quickly move through this. But he does notice, he starts to tune into them, to the kids, as who they, what their reality is, you know, what they have to deal with. And he realizes that he he sees them one day and they're off running. And he said, where are you going? And why are you running? And and they say, well, don't have a car and we got to get to work picking. And so they run miles every day. They're young. And then at home, they get fed, he noticed, beans and rice, you know, real protein building for all of this hard work. And so he starts to tune into the fact that football is not the sport for them. The sport for them 
is long distance running. <laughs> yeah, and literally, and he knows nothing about long distance running. And so he takes on, he's just a, he's just a very nice guy, but his karma and the group of these kids, about seven, he said, I need seven for a team, meets. And it's really very sweet and very incredible what happens. Patience on his side and endurance on the other side with the kids and wanting something more. They knew, because he tells them, he said, you guys are tough. You can do this. You can long distance run and you can beat these other teams. The other teams come from Palo Alto and, you know, I mean, these really nice areas. These kids, nobody is there that looks like them, looks like them, talks like them, has no life like them. But he, the first time they go out and he trains them and uh, he realizes first time they go out, they come in fourth. You know, and it's like, you know, but he said, hey, you came in fourth. That's good. You know, let's keep going. And then they do another race with hills. Well, they don't have hills. You know, it's all flat. So when they're training, which is to run through the orchards with him riding his bicycle along the way, running, you know, for miles. And then they he finds these huge mounds of almond hulls. And so he has them run up and down, up and down, up and down, almond hulls, to get in training again for the hills that they will find on these races. And finally, and this is all taking place in like 1986, 1987, and it doesn't take him too long, him to become a long-distance coach, them to really take it seriously, and they'll, they'll call him Blanco, Blanco, you know, Blanco, Blanco, White. You know, Jim White, White. So, and they, you know, they're weighed down. But at a certain point, he realizes he's not pushing them hard enough. He realizes how hard, how tough they are because he takes the time one day to go out in the fields with them early in the morning. And it just about kills him. And they know it. You know, they're saying, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure? Yep, yep. And so, but he, and he realizes what, how tough they are. And so he said, I'm not pushing them hard enough. They can really win this. And so he gets some training. He works with their schedule. They come in at 8 o'clock at night to train for running after all the other things they have to do. And then they go and they have this race and... In 1987, they participate to the level where they win the California State Championship for long-distance running. After, I think it's afterwards, I'm not quite sure, but as a celebration, he drives them to Ventura, to the beach, and he tries to go in, and the, and the park ranger said, 950, please, and he said, you know, I've only got $5, and I've got a whole busload of kids here who have never seen the ocean. And so the park ranger looks and he says, go on in. And so they go and they do that. But the incredible thing is, is that he took the time to really see who they were, what their reality was, and what their strength was. I mean, it's just incredible. It is a very, very sweet movie. But beyond that, once they did that, it lifted up the whole town. They went on to win eight other 
state championships in a row. I don't know what happened after that. This is in the 1990s. But, and then at the end, it shows all of the real people and what happened to them. A couple of them didn't make it. In the very beginning, he's saying, somebody says, oh, yeah, this guy just is, he's just out, or that guy's in. And he said, what are you talking about, in and out? Well, the penitentiary's right there, too. So kids are going in and out of the penitentiary all the time as well. But, but out of the seven, two of them, they get something out of it. The others become, one, a landowner, two, a policeman, three, a college counselor, three, four, a teacher. I mean, they just, before that, their families, ninth grade was as far as they went. These kids went to college after that. And it just, I thought, it's the energy level. They lifted it up, and they lifted their whole town up by doing that. And I thought, you know, it's a level of truth that they could deal with. They could deal with will and energy and endurance. You know, they could do all that. And they loved their families. They weren't, you know, just self-enclosed people. So, you know, looking at all the, the different things of how those who don't get to, you know, don't want truth, these kids had some of it. And they happened to meet someone who could help them meet that potential. And so it's just, it's an interesting thing to me just seeing where you can insert levels of truth out there that people are ready for and that really will make an incredible difference in their lives. One part of me when I, you know, the movie ended and I thought, well, that's great, but now life settles in again, but at a higher level. You know, at a higher level. And so, in one way, it's painfully slow. You know, it's still in duality for them, and it's still meaning they've got to deal with their lives. None of that goes away, but it's how we grow. And so, for all of us, we've grown tremendously. We hear these teachings, we know about things, we meditate, and so we can become channels for that high truth, but on levels that really work for other people. For most of us, we're not going to go to McFarland and, you know, do something like this man did. And interestingly enough, after he won those state championships, he was offered a job in Palo Alto. And people, he and his wife, decided, because the Hispanic community there had really taken them in, it was very heartwarming, and they they stayed. And this movie was just came out in 2015. He still lives there. Yeah. So it's it's interesting karma, and it's interesting just what happens with people. But do keep in mind that the highest thing that we have to offer, of course, is Kriya Yoga, and all the teachings of Raja Yoga that is there. But then. See how that applies to people you may come in contact with because it can be deeply meaningful and even potentially liberating for them. So.